Welcome to Cellular Healing TV. I'm Ashley Smith, and this episode is a replay of a popular show from 2018 with gut expert Dr. Michael Ruscio. Dr. Ruscio joined Dr. Pampa to discuss the complex topic of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, otherwise known as SIBO. You'll learn how your gut health relates to just about everything else in the body, how imbalances in the gut can manifest as disease. And you'll also hear tips about what we can do to address the problem in your gut, no matter how long you've been struggling. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. SIBO, which we're going to jump deeper into because I love what you said, because I made the comment that, gosh, people really have trouble with SIBO. And you said, man, that it's very simple. Let's talk about that. So I love that because I can't wait to hear it. Uh, because people do. They ask a lot of questions about SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, right. which has so many uh, causes to it that it, you know, people get very confused. You're going to bust through that today. But also your new book. I, I really want to promote that for you um, because it's going to break into these conversations as well. Uh, so let's let's jump right in, Michael. I have to ask the obvious question. Uh, you know, you're known for the gut work that you do. Um, how did you get into this? I'm, typically, people have a story. What's yours? I had a story. It's not necessarily the um, coolest story of, of uh, the stories you hear out there, but I, I was in college and I was actually quite intent on going into conventional medicine. And that was really kind of the, the path that I was on. I was your typical kind of type A and, and had good grades and was very driven. And that just seemed like a, a laudable goal given all my driven, uh, all my drive. But also perhaps a lack of direction. And, and you know they say life is the teacher, and, and in my case, the teacher was an intestinal parasite that then brought me to a point of extreme insomnia. And if anyone's ever suffered with insomnia, you know how just debil yeah, how debilitating that can be. Oh. And, and bouts of brain fog, which also can be debilitating. When you, when you feel like it's hard to carry out a, an intelligible conversation with someone, uh, it's very, very much a, a unpleasant impairment. In addition to some fatigue and some bouts of depression and feeling cold, and, and given I was months before that feeling nearly invincible as a as a college athlete, and nothing here really added up. I was doing what I loved. I was getting adequate sleep. I was eating all organic. I was studying health and nutrition. In addition to my, my story. Right. In addition to my my uh, formal academic training, I was also studying uh, those those areas. So I, I was dialing all those knobs into optimal. Yet I fairly suddenly started feeling quite ill. And I went to see three conventional doctors figuring, well, this is what they do. And none of them could find anything with the different assays that they ran. I and ran on that same road, by the way. Right. And many people do. And they commented that, well, you, you have a healthy body composition. You, your triglycerides and cholesterol and blood sugar all look good. All the, all the major boxes check. And there's not really anything we can do for you. So I found my way to a alternative medicine provider who uh, focused on digestive health. And he told me that I, I think you may have a parasite. And I remember thinking to myself, this, this guy's off his rocker. This, this guy must be crazy. Um, so I didn't do anything actually at that point in time. Um, I, I was kind of thinking about it, but I went out and I did some research on the internet and I said, oh, it sounds like I have adrenal fatigue. Oh, it sounds like I have hypothyroid or it sounds like I have heavy metal toxicity. I went down the same road, man. Right, right. And so I, 
<clears throat> I did the the herbs for thyroid conversion and didn't really feel much better. I did the adrenal support herbs, got a little boost that later faded. I peed in a cup for my testing of heavy metals and I came back high in, in lead in, in, I believe it was lead and mercury. And I did detox work and didn't feel any better after doing that. And so I was kind of brought to my knees by this whole process. And I said, geez, even though I'm a college student and $350 feels like a million dollars to pay for this stool test that the doctor wanted me to do. I figured I, at this point, I don't feel like I have much left to lose. So did the stool test. It came back with an amoeba and uh, treating that amoeba was the only thing that led to lasting improvement in all these symptoms that were not digestive, ironically, and that's actually an important tenet for us to, to establish here early in the conversation, is that you can have things like brain fog and fatigue and even skin problems or joint pain as a byproduct of a silent digestive problem. And, and I learned that the hard way. And so I diverted my path into alternative medicine and I loved the field, but there were also some aspects of the field that I didn't love. Uh, I, I felt there were some aspects that were overzealous and some treatment plans that were totally not guided by science or even reason, but rather dogma and and really overzealousness. And, and so I started challenging some of the things that I learned and trying to find what really worked and what may have been well-intentioned but misguided. And that's led me to perform one retrospective chart review that we're now drawing up for publication and we have IRB approval for a placebo controlled trial we'll, we'll be performing starting hopefully in January um, looking at a herbal remedy that can help prevent SIBO recurrence or at least we think it can and we're trying to see if that actually will, will be able to perform um, or, or live up to to its um, proclaimed um, ability to, to aid and I'm trying to strike that balance of giving people well thought out conservative but progressive information because the, the the double edge of the sword here is yes we want to help people but if we're if we're not tempered in our recommendations then we can lead people into thinking that they're more ill than they are that their life has to be more difficult with supplement popping and dietary restrictions than it needs to be and that creates harm in and of itself so sometimes in attempts to help people if we're not careful we actually harm them so i'm trying to now strike a, a reasonable and well-informed cautious balance of all those factors yeah no i i love it and healthy gut healthy you is the title of your book uh matter of fact where can you find it just uh, right off the bat Healthy Gut, Healthy You, you can find on Amazon. It's available both in print and as a Kindle or a Nook version, and you can get it uh, mainly through Amazon, but also through Barnes & Noble. Well, you know, in the title, obviously, you know, people watching this don't tune out because if you have a thyroid condition, you know, we both had thought, you know, no doubt my thyroid's playing a role, and mine was, but I went down that road like you did, dressed my adrenals, the whole thing, right? But there was definitely something more upstream. And today we know the microbiome, the gut plays a role in how our brain works, our immune system. Um, really, it can tie into our hormones, everything. Sure. So, okay, let's, you know, we, I think most of our viewers and listeners get that fact. But many of them right now listening and watching this are still saying, okay, but I have done it all. I'm still trying to fix my gut. Yours was a parasite, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about that uh, because I, too, when I was sick, had parasites, but I killed my parasite, but yet I still had symptoms. I still had insomnia. Things got better a little bit, you know, but it wasn't like a mercury yeah. out of my brain that I actually was able to even get rid of a lot of my candida and parasites permanently because my giardia and other things kept coming back. 
All right. So let's talk about some of these conditions. And we, we talked about SIBO at the top of the show. And I loved what you said because people struggle with this. So maybe it's not SIBO. How do they know? Maybe it is. How do they fix it? Give us some advice. And sure. it sounds like you're really versed in this because you're developing a product even to, to knock SIBO back. So let's start at the top right there. And I should clarify, we're not actually developing a product. We're studying a product that's often used in the SIBO community ah. as a preventative measure, but there hasn't been any study done to know if that actually works for sure. the measure it's purporting to help with. What is it? Can, we, can you talk about it? It's just a natural prokinetic agent. And, and there's, there's a handful of them out there, but prokinetics help to essentially ensure adequate movement of food through the intestines. When there's inadequate or, or slowed movement of food through the intestines, that's one of the underlying causes of SIBO. However, yeah. we don't have any studies on the natural treatments. We do have one drug model study using tagacerod, which is no longer available in the U.S., and also low-dose erythromycin, excuse me, which have shown benefit. They haven't shown the ability to prevent SIBO from coming back ever, but they delay the time in remission. So that's that's nice. The, the counterpoint, natural agents claim to do the same thing and, and support the same underlying mechanism, but there hasn't been any data showing they can actually help with that. Uh, and I have some suspicions that, that the, the importance of motility in SIBO is, is clearly there, yes, but I think it's been overstated. Yeah. And, and sometimes people end up pursuing motility at the expense of uh, perhaps not just making a dietary modification or using the appropriate probiotics. And, and that kind of ties in with your earlier point, which I had to do some additional steps also. And, and I, I think if I had my book now, I would have gotten healthier so much faster because yes, I, I probably got about 70, 80% better right after treating the parasite or, or, you know, in the course of a few months. But I had some histamine sensitivity that lingered and sometimes for people in the diet, that can be a major problem because as pe people gravitate toward healthier foods, they're oftentimes gravitating toward more histamine-rich foods. And this also accompanies and, is a, and, and this histamine intolerance can be a byproduct of a damaged intestinal lining. So for some people, it can be a game-changing, cathartic, improving experience when they reduce dietary histamine, even though they are these foods that are harped on as being so health-promoting, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, you know, any other fermented food, really, and things like spinach and avocado can all be problematic if, if consumed too frequently for people with histamine sensitivity. And, and so I did have some lingering brain fog and, and the real missing piece that needed to slide into place was not eliminating completely and again, not going to these, you know, dichotomous extremes of, of being, uh, you know, um, unreasonable about my level of histamine avoidance, but just realizing that I can't have, or I shouldn't have, a high histamine food with every meal for days and weeks on end. Because, I mean, it's virtually impossible to eliminate them completely, right? I mean, it's right. like a gluten contamination worse. Their histamines are in so many things. But the reduction of it allowed you uh, to get a hold, you know, to make other treatments more effective or at least work. But I, I liked your point because, you know, it's you don't eliminate histamines as the solution to your problem, right? You have a histamine reaction because you have an inflamed gut. <laughs> so sure. you know, it's like you, it's this, this balance. Okay, let, let's back up though, because you made so many great points. Um, okay, so some people, let's back all the way up and explain what SIBO is, what symptoms, sure. because many people, 
they're struggling with gut. It's some you know, time during their gut issue, they deal with SIBO. I dealt with it. I didn't even know what it was when I was dealing with it, right? It's I look back and I'm like, oh, I had SIBO, right? But I fixed it without even knowing what it was. Okay, so what is it? And let's talk about some of the symptoms and then we'll talk about some of the fixes that will lead us into the whole gut conversation. Sure, sure. So SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And this is essentially where you have too much bacteria in the small intestine. Now you should have bacteria. It could be good or bad, right? The good guys. Right. right. Yeah. And and exactly. So you should have bacteria in your small intestine. And it's not necessarily an issue of them being bad bacteria. And there are different theories and observations showing that sometimes it's bacteria that comes from further down the intestinal tract, grows up. And sometimes it's bacteria that comes from up the line and, and makes its way down. Um, so there, there's debate there. I, I don't think it makes a huge difference in terms of in most cases, in terms of how you have to treat this, but essentially you end up with too much bacteria in your small intestine. We also know a similar phenomenon can happen with fungus or, or yeast known as small intestinal fungal overgrowth. So we can see this general trend of overgrowth in the small intestine. And why that is so important for, for a multitude of reasons is because the small intestine is responsible for 90% of caloric absorption it represents over 56% of your digestive tract, and it is where you have the largest density of immune cells in your entire body. And so there's a profound inflammation, immune system connection hinged into the small intestine. And some of the healthy gut advice, which is centered around feeding gut bacteria with fiber and prebiotics and vegetables and fruits, which, which can be health promoting, but in the context of those with SIBO and also with IBS, these may actually be the maneuvers that are worst, the worst possible maneuvers for one's gut health, which comes back to your earlier point of people being confused and really not knowing what to do. And, and oftentimes people think they've done everything, but, but they really have not. And they, they've done everything that they know about, which is great, right? But it's me saying like, I, I you know, had a legal issue. I went in there as a self-defendant and I went with every defense I could think of. Well, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, right? So it's everything I can see, but it's yeah. not everything that, that's available out there. And, and, and just real quick, because I, I think this is important to establish, um, your gut, anyone's gut, is really an ecosystem. So yeah. it's not about just what's the one thing, the SIBO, and just killing the SIBO or combating the SIBO or the candida or the yeast or the pillar or whatever, or the inflammation. It's really a garden, and we want to find the combination of factors that will create the healthiest soil and then when you have healthy soil or a, or a healthy host, you harbor the growth and encourage the growth of healthy bacteria and fungus and other like life. So sometimes you get caught in this monotherapeutic focus. Yeah. Uh, and even as someone who has a fairly high level of specialty in SIBO, I always remember to look at the gut broadly in the context of the whole individual, just so we make sure that we're addressing it as holistically as we, as we really should. All right, so let's talk about it now. Bloating is one of the number one symptoms that people get, right? Like two hours, even six hours after a meal, boom, it feels like you're pregnant, feels like, uh, you know, you just ate, frankly. And, you know, okay, so that's the number one, you know, gas both ways, this way and that way, constipation, diarrhea, I mean, all of it, right? 
All right, what do we do? What's the first step? How would you walk someone through this? Mm -hmm. And I should also just build upon that, that, that those are your most classically defined SIBO symptoms. We're now seeing an association with SIBO to hypothyroidism as one, yeah. and even, even thyroid autoimmunity, according to a, a recent Polish study that showed that those with SIBO had a higher level of thyroid antibodies than those uh, healthy controls. And even to skin, we're seeing SIBO correlated with rosacea, and metabolism, we see some evidence showing, and I should mention that the SIBO data there also shows that after treatment of the SIBO, the rosacea, the skin condition improves. So it's good to have both uh, observational and also treatment outcome data. Right. And, and also we see that metabolism can improve by measure of cholesterol and blood sugar after treatment of SIBO. So just coming back to and trying to reinforce that principle that you yeah. can have non-digestive symptoms as a byproduct of a digestive problem. Right. Um, and I'm sorry, was your question, where do we start with SIBO? Yeah, no, it's good. yeah where do we start? I, okay, so but that was a great point. I mean, I, because again, uh, we're talking beyond the gut here. You know, it's, right. you know your, your health is your gut here, or your gut is your health. So what, what, what do we do? You know, what's the first step? Sure. And this is all outlined in Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And, you know, in case people feel a little bit like this is all coming at them kind of fast during this conversation. Oh, yeah. and, and, and we go through it one step at a time just to make it easy. But we want to start with diet and lifestyle. That is really the foundation. Now, you'll hear uh, um, disparate things about what the best diet for SIBO is. And what happens sometimes is people believe X, and so they find research that reinforces X. And yep. they ignore all the research showing that that is not the case for everyone. And what I've tried to do is look at what the, the entire body of literature shows. And when you do that, you don't have to worry about defending a certain diet. You can just say, well, there's a certain population for which this diet works, and it does not work for others. So let's look to what the key indicators uh, are. Way, clinically, I have found that, you know, it is a little bit different for everybody. Right, and exactly. To your point, go ahead. Right, and yeah, and if you look at the body of literature on diets, you see that different diets can work well for different people um, and fail for others. So, you know, we get into these arguments about what diet is the best, vegetarian, paleo, Mediterranean. By the way, I have a whole principle I talk about called diet variation. I believe magic is in switching diets, and I believe one of the greatest mistakes we make as a modern-day population is staying on the same diet. The typical sure. workforce at one point but I believe humans are genetically, DNA is set up to change diet, force adaptation, and therein lies the actual, the key. And that's why everybody's technically right. But with SIBO, I do find though, that some people like you, if they take certain products and killers while they're on things that feed SIBO, that can work, but other people have to get rid of them. So it is very different. So right, exactly, exactly. And, I, and I completely agree. Now, with SIBO, there's a couple places that, that are logical to start, meaning they, they seem to work for at least a ma majority of people. Now, a paleo-type diet is one great place to start. And, and a paleo diet does not mean you have to be high-protein, high-fat, high-meat. It can be a, a lower protein and fat and higher carbohydrate type of diet. I'll, I'll come back to that in more detail in just a moment. But essentially, the main tenet is a non-processed, whole foods-based diet where you focused on meat, fish, eggs, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds. So it's a very unprocessed diet, and you can skew the macros, the balance of carbs, proteins, and fats to your individual desires. But that can be a very good starting point, and there is data showing that the paleo diet can help with IBS. Now, 
I, I choose my words very carefully because I try not to conflate different things together. That, I think, only propagates confusion. Now, IBS studies, we have much more of those. And we know that anywhere from 4 to 84% of IBS may have the underlying cause of SIBO. And, and IBS is just essentially the same symptoms that often manifest as SIBO. So they're, they're definitely a, kind of a proxy for, for one another. Um, so we see great research showing, or I shouldn't say great research, we see some research showing that the paleo diet can help with IBS uh, amongst a litany of other conditions. So you can start there and here's one of the nice things is that you don't need to be on that diet for months and months to evaluate if that is a appropriate or inappropriate maneuver for yourself. Right. Two to three weeks is, is ample time to at least be able to say, yes, I'm feeling better. Will you be 100% healed? No, but you'll be able to clearly say, yes, I'm feeling better or eh, I don't really notice anything or I may even feel a little bit worse. And, and for those people, they can progress to another two to three week dietary trial. Um, and I'm happy to expand upon that one if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the next one would be a low FODMAP diet. And, and people have probably heard about low FODMAP diets. Essentially, one of the main principles of a low FODMAP diet is it restricts foods that are rich in prebiotics, which feed bacteria. And some of these foods are stereotyped as being very healthy. And again, it's not to say that they're always healthy or always unhealthy, but it's learning, to your earlier point, what person will benefit from what maneuver dietarily. So in people with IBS and with SIBO, some evidence is showing that, well, definitely those with SIBO have too much bacteria. Uh, and so eating foods that are very rich at feeding bacteria would logically not be a good idea. And other people who don't have abnormally high levels of bacteria may be abnormally sensitive to the gas pressure that's caused when bacteria essentially eat and then release gases. And so even for those without SIBO, a low FODMAP diet can be helpful due to some people being hypersensitive to gas pressure. And we do have a number, over 10 randomized clinical trials showing quite impressive effectiveness of a low FODMAP diet. And I should also mention that the low FODMAP diet, in addition to helping to starve some of these bacterial overgrowths, and I, and I say this in the context of sometimes the low FODMAP diet is depicted as being unhealthy for your gut because it starves bacteria, but that is a, is a very narrow way of looking at this issue. Again, coming back to some of our earlier points, we know that a low FODMAP diet can reduce leaky gut, inflammation, immune activation in the gut by decreasing histamine, and may actually enable the increased growth of serotonin and PYY cells in the intestines to make essentially the cells in the intestines more like that of healthy controls. So it's important not to take one observation that people who go on a low FODMAP diet see a decrease of bifidobacterium populations, which is true, but if that occurs in a healthier host and, and looked at along with all these other contextual factors, then I, I'm hard pressed to make an argument that a low FODMAP diet is an untenable recommendation. Well, and again, we're not saying to stay on that diet forever. <laughs> so right. I believe again, it's the variation you know, periods of diet change are actually good, regardless of the, the temporary uh, changes it does in the microbiome. Explain to people, because that may be the first time they've ever heard of FODMAP, and they're going, what, what is this? What, what is it? So give a little bit more explanation of what the paleo, I think people understand, and, and you're right, you can change how much protein, you know, but explain this. Sure. And, and I, I should just mention that I absolutely agree with your point and as in terms of broadening the diet or, or changing the diet. And as people become healthier, 
they will be able to thrive on a broader array of foods. So it's very, it's very important that we yeah, establish that. And then regarding the low FODMAP diet, this is a diet low in mainly carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables specifically, that feed or, or are rich in prebiotics and, and are powerful at feeding bacteria. And the foods are, are, they don't seem to have a huge rhyme or reason, but there are many stereotypically healthy vegetables, many in the brassica family, that are actually high in FODMAPs and to be avoided on a low FODMAP diet. And it's fairly easy to find a good food list on the internet. Not every food list agrees, so don't let that freak you out. Um, you know, it's, it's not about looking at the small amount of disagreement that you want to focus on. It's, it's the you know, large amount of foods that are agreed upon. And, our, and the book also gives you a, a well-researched low FODMAP diet food list. But things like broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, avocado, are all high FODMAP. And so some people go paleo and they cut out, uh, maybe they were eating some, some grains and they cut out some of those grains and eat a lot more vegetables and all of a sudden they feel worse. And that yeah. does happen to some people and it's inadvertent and I know it's very defeating when you're taking actions to improve your health yet you're feeling worse. But for these people, it, it may be a simple adjustment of going to a lower FODMAP diet and then they may feel better within, again, two to three weeks. Right. Yeah, no, there's uh, there's truth to that as well. Okay, let's uh, let's go on. Let's call it step three, if you will. Sure. So uh, you know, w within that diet and lifestyle, uh, I'm sorry, uh, is it, lifestyle, and I think you've probably addressed that fairly, you know, uh, amply uh, up, up until now. So I think people understand sleep, exercise, manage stress, pursue purpose, what have you. But worth at least just ticking those very briefly. And so the next step would then be some non-dietary interventions. And this is what some people get stuck in sometimes. They get stuck in the quicksand of diets and they, they don't know when it's time to leave the dietary trial camp and then go into some non-dietary interventions. And this is important because some people will try to force a dietary solution to a non-dietary problem. And so we wanna make sure we don't keep beating them over the head of the dietary stick. Now, one of the next things that someone can do that can be very helpful is a course of probiotics. And there's quite a bit of confusion regarding probiotics because there are hundreds, if not more, products out there. And what I did in the book was help the reader realize that there are really three to four categories that almost any probiotic product can be organized into. Now, category one of probiotics consists of a mainly lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominated blend. So when you look on the label, you'll see lactobacillus acidophilus, bifidobacterium infantis, and you'll see mostly of those probiotics will be either a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium species probiotic. So that's category one, and you wanna definitely try one of those because that is the most well-studied category, and they have been shown to have the ability to combat SIBO, fungus, parasites, and to improve IBS. And I'm talking very high level scientific data. Now category two is a Saccharomyces probiotic, uh, Saccharomyces boulardii containing probiotic. And this is actually a healthy fungus. And when you look in the label there, you will see Saccharomyces boulardii. And then category three is your spore forming, also sometimes described as a soil based probiotic. And here you will see predominantly bacillus strains, bacillus lichenformis, bacillus subtilis, bacillus clausii, and these strains have also been shown, along with the Saccharomyces boulardii, to have a multitude of benefit for someone's gut. But there's another important aspect to this, which is 
most people, by far the majority of people, will either be neutral or benefit from the use of probiotics. However, there's a smaller subset that may notice some kind of negative reaction. Yeah. And so why the category system can be helpful amongst other things is if you try product after product after product and you don't understand that you keep having this bloating reaction because you keep taking a lactobacillus bifidobacterium category one blend, right. the answer there will elude you for a very long time. But if you can understand that, okay, I'm going to try each one of these categories of probiotics, see how each one feels relative to my gut health and then use what works and discard what doesn't, now you can, in a very short period of time, personalize a probiotic protocol for your individual gut. So one of the next most powerful steps can be a high-quality probiotic taking into consideration the different categories to help personalize the mixture to an individual. You know, and I, I want to make people aware of this potential pitfall as well. You find one that works, and then you stay on it uh, for many months, year and then you end up monoculturing <laughs> so mm -hmm. one of the things i love to teach is rotate these bacteria very important you know or even go on and off of them i find that the the soil organisms um people with severe SIBO, it's a very safe place to start they seem not to react um the, the people especially who react to probiotics that seems like the place uh, place to start i don't know what you found there but um but you know, I, i've heard that i i haven't found that clinically i I was swept into that thinking I think I was maybe placeboing myself or just because it's very hard when you when you hear many people saying one thing not to create that placebo effect in your own head. And I mean, it's difficult. We know that in IBS trials that are placebo controlled, meaning that all of the, the placebo effect is, is attempted to be designed out of the study, the average placebo effect is 45 percent. So placebo, even even for the most brilliant mind, is a, is a powerful fact to to guard against um, and there are some people who clearly do better on on soil base but there are I've also noticed there are clearly some people who do better on the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium blend uh, and then some people do well on neither and only well on the Saccharomyces boulardii and I, I think they all have a case that can be made for them I do think that in in the general scientific literature the utility or, or just the, the recognition and identification of the soil based organisms is not where it should be uh, there should be more data on there uh, on those. We only have, I believe, about 14 clinical trials with soil-based probiotics, whereas we have maybe a few hundred with the lactobacillus bifidobacterium blend. So unfortunately, the category one does kind of predominate the conversation right now, but I, I do think that's shifting in a, in a positive way. So, okay, then what? Um, what's uh, step four for, we're, you know, do we go killers at this point? So one of the next, and there's there's some nuance in here also, and you know of course we can't go through every every aspect of the steps in detail. Uh, along with that second step, there, there's also the consideration of adrenal support and enzymes, um, and especially with enzymes, and even more so with hydrochloric acid. I think there's a lot of confusion about that, and I tried to really dispel some of that confusion in the book because some people I've seen some cases where they're non-responsive. GI symptoms were a byproduct of taking acid when they didn't need to or mm -hmm. taking bile when they didn't need to. Um, those can both be helpful, but uh, we don't we want to make sure that we're not having someone go on something just because, oh, I heard it was good for your gut health. We right. want to make sure to qualify that per individual. But after we get through that, that uh, confection of different treatment options, then we can escalate to antimicrobial herbal therapy. So things like oregano and allicillin and, and berberine, people have probably heard of, of many of these. And 
if someone is not able to resolve dysbiosis or imbalances, so dysbiosis is an umbrella term for SIBO and H. pylori and candida kind of encompasses everything, then herbal antimicrobial agents can be one of the next things to consider to administer. And these, you know, we do have data showing that these herbs can work well for a number of conditions. Um, and the nice thing about these is many of these herbs have broad action where they will act against bacteria, fungus, and parasites all at the same time. Right. So, and, and this is nice because as helpful as testing can be, there are probably more things that we cannot test for oh. or cannot routinely test for. So another mistake people make is they want to try to test their way to better gut health. Yeah, yeah. And I can tell you that, yes, testing does have a time and a place, but I am doing far less testing now than I was several years ago. Yeah. And, and, and the book protocol, can, right. Yeah. And the book protocol can be done without any testing because, again, it's not about knowing what the one thing is. We're trying to create a healthier milieu in the gut soil globally. And so we can perform some pushes and, and pulls to the gut milieu and read someone's response to figure out what's working well for them. So the herbals are nice because instead of having to worry about is it SIBO and candida or is it one or the other, the herbs can help to give a gentle push to the microbiota and thus, hopefully, if it works, after that push, the microbiota will rebalance to a healthier equilibrium. Yeah, most of the herbs, they don't wipe out the good bacteria. Um, you know, they kind of bring things in control. You know, it's um, definitely a better way to go. Okay, um, is, there, is there another step? Because um, I, I, I do have a question about hydrogen-producing bacteria. People are going to ask, we, you and I just mentioned testing. Uh, can I test for SIBO? And of course, there's breath tests, but talk a little bit about that if there's not a step five. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there are, there are more steps. There, there's actually- yeah, I, That's why I didn't want to cut you off, but I had to- Sure, so sure. Keep uh, I get it, I get it. Um, so we'll, we'll help keep each other in check here because there's a lot of different ways we can go. So we're going to have to anchor each other. Um, so there's the ability within the book protocol to escalate the antimicrobial therapy because people may have performed antimicrobial therapy in the past and seen a small response or only a short lived response. Mm -hmm. And there is definitely something that can be done to help make that response greater or more long lasting. Sometimes it's a simple adjustment to the dose and the, the duration. Sometimes we have to add in the addition of antibiofilm agents to help with, yes. with stubborn colonies. Uh, and then, uh, or, and or along with that, anti-inflammatory and specific antiprotozoal agents. And the nice thing here is you have one agent that can act as both of those. Uh, and then the, the furthest or the highest escalation of antimicrobial therapy can be a liquid-only meal replacement known as an elemental diet. And uh, this is where we do have one formula that I think is, is a bit novel that I mentioned in the book, which is a palatable version of an elemental diet. And just in brief here, an elemental diet is essentially, if you were to picture a meal replacement shake, that devoid of any artificial sweeteners, bad colorings, you know, um, fillers, excipients, super hypoallergenic and gut friendly, and devoid of really any prebiotics. And that's been researched in a number of studies to help reduce both um, yeah, both SIBO and both gut inflammation. And, and we use a, a formula known as Elemental Heal, which is a semi-elemental diet, which is palatable. That, that's the big thing. The, the older generation of elemental formulas were very, very hard to stomach. They just tasted horrid. 
there's a newer generation coming out that are palatable. And for people who have not responded to anything else, sometimes knowing how to use and using a good elemental diet formula can be a real game changer. Uh, so you know, th those are a few of the things, a few of the maneuvers that we can perform within the, the antimicrobial therapy. And then you are, and then you are also asking. Um, sorry, remind me what the other question yeah, was. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know there's different um, ways of testing for. Oh, I'm sorry, testing here. You know, the, the the breath test, which again, I mean, I went down that road. I I stopped doing it. Um, what was your what's your thoughts on it? Mm -hmm. That's the breath test. Mm -hmm. So there's a breath test that can be performed for SIBO, and that that's likely the most validated. Um, there, there is a gold standard, which is essentially with an endoscopy tube, taking a sample out of the small intestine and culturing that sample. But uh, some of the validity of that measure has actually been questioned, and it's obviously not able to be done in routine clinical practice. Now, that can be helpful, but and you, you will see disparate recommendations. Some people will vehemently recommend testing every time you're going to treat SIBO and, and do and perform serial retests. And I think that that contingent is slowly becoming a, a bit less testing prone as we're learning more about this. And you, you'll see others who recommend no testing at all. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, probably a little bit closer to the no testing at all. The, the um, North American expert consensus concluded uh, fairly liberal use of SIBO breath testing. The Rome consensus, which is probably the, the most highly regarded body in gastroenterology in the entire world, recommended reserving it for select cases where you had evidence of malabsorption. And one systematic review suggested treat to get a baseline to see if that's one of the chess pieces on the board. And then from there, treat empirically, which is what we do in the book, treat empirically meaning treat someone, observe their response, and then use their response to adjust the treatment. And, and that's essentially what I do in the clinic. And that's what I recommend in the book also. Um, there are also other tests that can be done. There are other breath tests that can be done for H. pylori. There are stool tests, of course, that can be done for other types of dysbiosis. Yeah. There are even blood tests that can be performed in other urine tests. And it's tempting. I understand it. In theory, it's tempting to say, well, I want to test to, to know what's there. Right. And some people say, if we're, if we're not assessing, we're guessing. But there's another, there's another aspect of this, which is very important, which is if you're only able to assess 30% of what we know could be a problem, then how helpful is your testing, especially if you stop listening or you, you don't listen as closely to the patient's um, you know, uh, changes because you're only looking at what the labs show. And I, this is one of the ultimate travesties of a testing-heavy method of practice is you don't get those absolutely valuable pearls from the patient's response to steer how you're moving things forward. Well, that, I agree 100%. And then, you know, you have your uh, certain bacteria that are hydrogen producers, certain bacteria that are methane producers. And um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Brown um, on, and he has a product called Atrantil, which, mm -hmm. by the way, my doctors absolutely get fantastic results. Um, it has a tendency to treat both. Um, but, you know, people argue, well, if you test, you can then target the hydrogen producers, which are different to kill than the methane producers. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that question brings us to a, what I think is another incredibly important fundamental pillar for us to establish, which is, um, yeah, how, how do I say this most, most uh, diplomatically here? Um, <laughs> if, if you're looking to make practice more difficult, you will certainly be able to make that a reality. 
But if you're looking to make practice more simplified, then you will be able to make that a reality. And the challenge is, is that some yeah, people, well. right, some some people really enjoy the complexity, which is all fine and good. But we must always be looking for how do we bring this back to the simplest core set of recommendations or treatments or tests. And by, by, by the way, Doc, I train doctors, so that what you just said is very very true. You know, I, I have a group that absolutely loves to make it more complicated, and, right. and, and that's the way they're going to function. And then right. I have a group that absolutely wants it simple. So mm -hmm. you're right about that. And it's not to say that what you do would be any less effective or any less scientific. In fact, I would argue, and I believe it was Einstein who first said, if you cannot explain something simply, then you do not understand the problem well enough. So we should not, we should not conflate uh, being remedial with being simple, right? A, a good well, clinical I've algorithm is one for many years, right? I mean, I've been right. teaching, you know, teaching for well over 15 years, uh, going on 20. But uh, the, the longer I go into it, the more I'm, I'm making things more simple, right? Sure. I mean, it's sure. like the more, like I said, the less I test, the more it's like you just right. really end up in a more simple view, the more you learn. Precisely, precisely, right. And so the more we learn, and this is happening as a field, the less we have to do. Right, so a cell phone now can do ten times you know, arbitrarily uh, what it used to be able to do five years ago, and it's a uh, half of the size. Right, so as we get better, we should be able to do more with less. Yeah. And, and so I can say for for some patients and certainly for some doctors, the the piece that eludes them is they're making things unnecessarily complicated. And and here is a great point because by the way, um, there's a lot that we know works. Sometimes what I find happens is people are chasing down the exotic and the new and the complicated, but they haven't even mastered the therapies that we know work. So and if, if that's happening to you, then you are doing your patients a disservice. It's just, and I, it's not intentional. Obviously, we're all trying to help people as much yeah. as we can. It's just important to realize that sometimes these new and novel things, if they're distracting you from having a mastery of what we already know works, then you're you're really committing a, a dice roll. But, but to your point, I see the, the, the validity in testing to identify what type of organisms, hydrogen or methane, if you're using pharmaceuticals, because then you would want this one certain pharmaceutical or potentially two different pharmaceuticals if, if it was methane or a different pharmaceutical altogether if it was a fungus. But again, with the herbal medicines, it appears that most of these herbal medicines have broad acting effect. Uh, so again, do we need to make it more complicated like that? I, I really don't think so. I would rather have someone undergo antimicrobial therapy, look at their response, and then we can say that either caused a reaction, so we have to change to a different formula because it was likely some kind of allergic or intolerance reaction. They improved somewhat, meaning we can either go longer or a higher dose or use biofilms, or they didn't respond at all, meaning maybe what maybe the stimulus that the microbiota needs is not antimicrobial stimulus. But if you get so caught up in all the details of these tests, you may miss some of those simple directing cues at the expense of trying to analyze all this uh, complicated lab data that you're pouring over. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Okay, without pulling you into a, a new topic, a new direction, which I tend to do. Um, <laughs> what are what's the next steps with this that are absolutely imperative that people listening need to hear? So, after someone performs antimicrobial therapy, I do recommend they use a prokinetic. 
But again, you know, my recommendation there may change in light of the placebo-controlled trial. That it's been actually a few. There's a long backstory in this trial. Um, Back up, prokinetic. People aren't going to understand. Yeah, sorry. So I'm sorry. Prokinetic is, is an agent that helps to keep food moving through the intestines at an appropriate pace. Um, so that is one of the recommendations I make at the moment. That may change in light of new findings, depending on some of the research that we're going to be performing. But uh, to take a <clears throat> excuse me, a, a broad spectrum natural prokinetic. Many of the ingredients in, in these are, are very novel and, and arguably maybe even health promoting like ginger. So it's, we don't have to make necessarily a hard case for safety. It's cost that I also try to be very sensitive to. And that's where I try to minimize the amount of things that people take so that they're not incurring more cost than they need to. But a, a prokinetic may be helpful. The other thing that I think is probably more important and maybe uh, something that's more of a, a tripping point for people is we wait until this point until we experiment with either increasing the, the prebiotic and fiber content of the diet or utilizing a fiber and or prebiotic supplement in their supplement regimen. And there's a very important directing principle that you, if you look at all the literature here, you can kind of tease it out. People who are the most symptomatic have the highest chance of negatively reacting to prebiotic and or fiber supplements. Yeah. There, there are data showing that they can be helpful. They, they, they have shown the ability to reduce blood sugar and leaky gut and help with, yeah. um, with, with essentially healing the gut and, and feeding bacteria that feed short-chain fatty acids. So there have been some mechanistic and health outcome data uh, or data points uh, showing that they, the, the, the prebiotics and the fiber can help, but they can also flare people. So how do yeah. you know which way someone's going to go? It seems that the more symptomatic someone is, the higher the probability that they'll have a negative reaction to fiber or prebiotic supplementation or high levels in the diet. So we wait until we've gotten a little bit down the road of the gut healing protocol to then cautiously introduce these to see if someone will benefit or if they will have a negative reaction. And if they do, we go into that with our eyes wide open and we pull them out of that very quickly in case they're reacting negatively. Well, I mean, not every fiber is not created equal. You know, you have more soluble fibers, which the bacteria love to eat. And then you have the more insoluble fibers like psyllium, which is more of a prokinetic, you know, it moves through. But talk about some of the prokinetics that you're studying. Talk about what they are, um, that, you know, the things that our viewers can be like, oh, okay, I could try this to help speed things through the gut a little bit better. Sure, sure. So again, I, I would only recommend someone uses those after they've gone through all the other steps in the protocol because you want to make sure you use this at the appropriate point in the sequence. Yeah. Iberogast is probably the most well-studied compound, and that was what we were going to study originally, and we had approval to study that. Then Iberogast changed hands in terms of who owned the formula and they took that product off the market in the US. You can still buy it for, for no safety reasons, to my knowledge. It, it's probably just a business decision uh, that dictated that, that maneuver. You can buy it still through some online outlets if you live in the US. It's just we couldn't study it if it wasn't allowed for distribution in, in, in the US. Motil Pro is another good agent that uh, can be helpful, which has some similar but different ingredients, uh, ginger uh, as one in, in addition to a few other um, uh, compounds. The, the challenge that we get into here is we have predominantly mechanism studies and very few outcome studies with these natural prokinetics. And why that's detrimental, and this is another, I think, fundamental point I talk about in the book. If you look at mechanisms and then from the mechanism infer what the treatment should be, there's a fairly high probability that you could be wrong. And to your earlier point about soluble and insoluble fiber, one would think because soluble fiber feeds bacteria 
For people with IBS, the soluble fiber would be the most prone to causing reactions. And it's actually the complete opposite. The people who have IBS do the best with soluble fiber and have the highest instance of reverse rea adverse reactions with insoluble fiber, which was oh, totally, yeah. which, yeah, which it, it totally it's insoluble or irritable. I mean, the bile is irritable, right? And it, it, it tends to make them drive them nuts. I, right. I, Right. Uh, or even as another example, we would think that people with gut inflammation and leaky gut would do better on a high FODMAP diet because prebiotics and FODMAPs feed bacteria, bacteria secrete short-chain fatty acids, short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory and reparative to the gut lining. Yet we see for some reason for those people, when they do that, they actually can feel worse. Um, so the, the, the point I'm driving at is with the natural prokinetics, theoretically they should work, but until we really can substantiate that, I do recommend using them, but I you know, I don't put all my eggs in that basket in terms of prevention. Um, so those are, are probably the, the two better known prokinetics that are in the market. There are some different ones in Canada that are essentially some of the uh, some similar ingredients, but that's an area where I still think we have a decent amount to learn. There are medications that can be useful. Low-dose naltrexone is one, and, and that may have other positive immunomodulatory benefits. And low-dose erythromycin is another, in addition to a, a third compound known as Resilor. But, um, you know, these drugs do have side effects, and, and so it's not to say that they have severe side effect profiles, but I, I think people like at least starting with a natural compound, and so that's where we recommend it. We'll start in the book. Well, I, real quick on the drug thing, um, the Zypan, what about the, um, um, the one that they advertise on TV? Is that, am I saying that right? Zyfaxin? Zyfaxin. Th thank you. Zyfaxin. Sure. I, so, I mean, that, that seems to help with the non, it helps more with the methanes and not the hydrogen, so it only works for about half the people. Um, what's your thoughts on it? So the, the Zyfaxin or Rifaximin, as it's also called, that helps with, with uh, you know, I think you inverted those, the, with the oh, hydrogen, yeah, yeah with the, with the hydrogen. I invert everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I do this at SAR sometimes to keep all the details straight. Um, so that helps with the hydrogen SIBO. Yeah. It likely needs to be combined with neomycin, which probably has a little bit more, not probably, appears to have a higher side effect profile than the Rifaximin. Um, so these are two different pharmaceutical antibiotics that can be used, and they can be helpful. Now, they, uh, especially the rifaximin is criticized sometimes, and I, I actually think that we should defend the antibiotic in this case because, you know, I, I really do try to be objective. And even though I'm, I like the natural medicines, there are, you know, we want to be fair. And so with rifaximin or zifaxin, the studies that are criticized are studies that are only using one intervention of an antibiotic. They're not combining the intervention with diet, lifestyle, probiotics, preventative treatments. So would we expect to see a remarkable level of improvement with just one monotherapeutic approach? No, but it, those studies showing benefit, even though some of those studies are short-term benefit with rifaximin, do substantiate the idea that antibacterial therapy can be helpful in IBS and in SIBO. And I think as natural providers, we have a nice, uh, you know, robust toolkit of other therapies that can work along with the antimicrobial treatments to extend and, and hopefully prolong definitely the improvement that can be garnered. Oh, so I, I've had people helped by it, uh, honestly. And again, yeah. whether it's you know making up a number, 50% of them, um, it still was helpful in, in some of the cases for sure. sure. So um, the, uh, oh gosh, where were we going with that though? Because we had something else. We were going down. I knew me asking that question was going to throw me off because we were really going down a road there. Oh, I know what it was. Okay. On people utilize, gosh, even vitamin C flushes to just push out bacteria. Sometimes mm -hmm. it works. 
Um, people utilize them. We kind of talked about fiber. You know, sometimes, you know, that, that can help move things along. Magnesium is another. I mean, these are basic things that people use that sometimes help. I mean, is it in that same category, um, you know, that we were discussing? Sure. Great, great question. So technically, these are not known as prokinetics. They're known more as laxatives. And there, there's a difference there. Doesn't make a huge difference for they, our they audience. For you know. peristalsis, but they have a flushing effect. Right, right. Now for constipation, yes, magnesium, vitamin C can both work very well, as can a predominantly soluble fiber. Now, the constipation can also be a byproduct of bacterial overgrowth or of food choice. And we also have data showing that probiotics can be an effective treatment for constipation. Um, now, one nuance here, and we also talk about this in the book, is that when people go on a low FODMAP diet, sometimes they'll become less bloated, but more constipated. Because the low FODMAP diet is, is reducing some of these fibers and prebiotics. So if you know that going in, and if you tell people that going in, they, they have a better ability to kind of wrestle with that mentally and they understand, okay, this is helping with the bloating, some of the gas, maybe some of the abdominal pain, but I'm a little bit more backed up. So now I'm going to do one serving of magnesium citrate at night and my bowels are now moving fine. Yeah, right. That is uh, helpful. So, and for the majority of, of cases, by optimizing their diet, finding the right probiotics, using a little bit of natural laxation support, which for some people is totally normal if they need that, a little bit of fiber or magnesium or vitamin C or a, or a mixture of those, totally reasonable. There's a small subset of people who may have constipation induced via non-IBS mechanism, so to speak. And, and so if someone has all of their other digestive symptoms ameliorate, go away, yet they're still left with constipation, then that may be a different type of, of constipation. And in some of these cases, it could be known as uh, dyssynergic constipation, where there may be tightness in the, in the muscles, especially in the pelvic floor. And, and we've interviewed a gastroenterologist motility specialist who has pioneered something known as biofeedback therapy, which can retrain some of those muscles. And so essentially, the, the colon should contract and the, the anus should open up to expel feces. And some people, that signal gets skewed and they have to retrain those muscles. So the solution uh, is essentially this retraining. And then on other people, they may have slow transit constipation, of which there are a number of, of treatments. Uh, we have discussed this with gastroenterologists on our podcast, and we've referred for some patients to use these. Um, a small number of patients seem to like them, but I, I found that many patients would rather be on fiber and high-dose magnesium and maybe even an occasional enema than use some of the medications like planaclotide or um, Linzess or what have you. But it, I do think there's a time and a place for those. It's just a, a very small subset. And I and for some people, they, they do help. So we should you know remain open, but try to really utilize the most non-invasive therapies first for us. Yeah, you know, and I, I've seen this little food for thought here, you know, that PEMF devices can help that, what you're talking about, and, and even get the peristalsis moving. And because part of it's neurological, I've seen people with laser devices and light therapy actually help as well. Uh, so there's some other thoughts. And here's a big one. Uh, the, you know, we both have seen this where uh, something as simple as the ileocecal valve can be open. Now we could argue how did it get open in the first place and you have to go upstream even further, but closing it makes a significant change in people. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Well, the, the, I wish there was more data looking at some of these ileocecal valve therapies. 
um, manual therapies are often used and the 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 yeah, pretty much going in and finding the tender point and you know basically right. massaging it. that's right. pretty much as simple as it gets and I, and I think the the group that's really done the best to advance visceral massage or visceral man, manual therapy has really been Gary and Belinda Wern who are at Clear Passage and in a pioneered therapy known as Wern therapy where they they've documented reduced infertility reduced SIBO relapse after doing an assessment and then breaking down with fairly intensive manual therapy these scar tissues and, and these adhesions so i think if there's a if there's a structural component to this it may not be as, as specific as the ileocecal valve per se but it may be that there's there's points at which there's adhesions or scar tissue that need to be manually broken down and by doing that Definitely, there have been some, again, a, a small percentage of cases, but certainly some cases that have seen very, very impressive results from some type of visceral therapy to the abdomen. And, and especially if someone has any history of abdominal trauma or surgery, that indicates that you may be someone who wants to consider uh, this. And then if you also have had a history of any kind of inflammatory issue in the gut or the bowel, inflammatory bowel disease, endometriosis, or any kind of... Uh, you know, tubal obstruction or, or ligation or, or issue um, regarding you know some of the female parts, then you may want to consider this. It, it'd be something end phase, and I do recommend some of these therapies as considerations at the end of the book for uh, you know for a section. You know, what do you do if you've done everything in the book and you still have an optimal response? That that would that will really only be the minority of people because the book protocol is quite robust. But there are some things like this visceral therapy that you're going to have to go see someone in person to really have that sorted out. Yeah, yeah, and, and folks listening and watching, I mean, uh, if you take your your belly button and the prominent place on your hip, there's a diagonal line. I don't know, six inches, maybe less, five inches. Go about halfway push in. If you find a tender spot, maybe you need some of this work, right? I mean, again, to, to Dr. Michael's point, uh, it could be even more complicated now, but at least it's a place to start. And I've watched enough people uh, make a significant difference just finding that tender spot and having someone or even yourself work that spot out. But okay, let's, uh, let me give you the final word here as we, we come to a conclusion. Great, great stuff, Dr. Michael. And again, find the book, uh, you know, absolutely. I, I think this book will be a, a really good seller. You know, it sounds like you're really well researched, which I appreciate. So he healthy gut, healthy you, uh, Amazon, find it. But give you the last word, Michael, on this topic that something that the, these people need to hear. I, I think there, there's really two things in one that, that are the most important for people to keep in mind. One is to be careful with where you get your information. And, and I say that because I've seen enough patients read on the internet why they should avoid low FODMAP or carbs or wow. lectins or oxalates or fiber or gluten. And they're not given the context and, and the, the carefulness with the crafting of the message. And so they end up making themselves sick or making their lives more difficult because they have this fearful, fearful relationship with food. And if, if, if that's happening to you, it, it's really detracting from your health rather than contributing to your health. So I, I tried to write into the book a very hopeful and a very empowering message regarding diet, not one that's you know, doom and gloom and fearful. And, and so that I think is the one, because it's, it's very important that people don't make themselves sick because they feel they have to encumber themselves with this daunting level of dietary avoidance. It's very, very important. And then kind of along with that in terms of mindset, 
is, and I always share this Nietzsche quote, which is, he who has a why to live can overcome almost any how. So it's important that you maintain a foot in what you want to do with your life. And, and what happens sometimes is these come together and people start withdrawing from their work or from their purpose or from even their social interactions because they're trying to diet harder and harder and harder. And it's very, yeah, it's very important to have a healthy outlook on your diet and, and good educators to help you achieve the healthy outlook. And then make sure if, if you want to be the best mom in the world, or if you're trying to lead a nonprofit or whatever you're trying to do, keep that purpose in your life because that purpose will help pull you through some of the challenging times we all go through. Well said, Doc. Love it. Yeah, well said. Great job. Great, great interview. And thank you for being on Say Healing TV. And, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. All right, cool. She'll cut that out. Yeah, great, great information. Great job, man. You'll sell some books, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You know, it's it's uh, it's. I'm very passionate about it, as you can probably tell. And trying yeah. to help give people a good guide through uh, the, the tumultuous landscape of gut information. Uh, uh, great. You know, we branched out, but I, I think we pulled them in from uh, an area that everyone's clamoring about. So it'll be great. It's going to be great. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. All right, yeah. Matt. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This episode was brought to you by Cytodetox. Please check it out at buycytonow.com. We'll be back next week and every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. We truly appreciate your support. You can always find us at cellularhealing.tv. And please remember to spread the love by liking, subscribing, giving an iTunes review, and sharing the show with anyone you think may benefit from the information heard here. And as always, thanks for listening.